Amen. Great. So tonight we are looking at, uh, so we're part three now, and we're looking at Jesus the Theologian, uh, which might sound like a bit of a strange title or a strange kind of topic to be uh, looking at. You know, isn't Jesus, doesn't he just have the best theology? Doesn't he just believe that, you know, he's the second person of the Trinity and that he's the Messiah and all those kind of things? So, so it's strange to be talking about him as a theologian, but let me just kind of explain what we're talking about a little bit tonight. Uh, We've got four books, all biographies on Jesus, and each of them are presenting him in a certain way. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at each of those, Matthew and then Mark and then Luke and so on. But um, tonight, what I want us to do is, is kind of step back and using this analogy, we've got four biographies on Winston Churchill. And actually, I noticed this as I was putting them in. Notice that they start in the, uh, about the one o'clock there and then they just get more and more zoomed in. <laughs> so the trick to writing a biography on Churchill is just zoom in a bit further in on his face. Um, but you've got, we've got four different biographies on him. Now, they're not all saying the same thing. You, you, you turn to page 200 on one, it's not going to look the same as page 200 on another. They order the events differently. They would have different things they're emphasizing, different character traits they're bring, trying to bring her out. It doesn't mean that one of them's telling the truth and the other three are lying. It just means that they're presenting the story in a different way. But nonetheless, behind all of these biographies, there is a man who had a particular style, who had a particular view on things, who ordered his, uh, those who he was leader over in a certain way. And so when you read the biographies, you can ask what the man behind them was like in the various things he did. So that's kind of what we're doing um, tonight. And one of the things that I want to say at the beginning is we're looking at different topics and different things that Jesus did and said. But one of the things that really struck me as I was preparing this is how they're all very much like strands that build up a rope. They're not disparate things. Jesus believed this and he also believed this. Jesus actually has a very, very consistent theology, which shouldn't be a surprise, I suppose. But one of the things we're going to look at tonight, while we're looking at the different categories, just think about how they interact with one another. And so there'll be a few times where something will get said and then we'll move on and then we'll think, hang on a second, that's related to what we just looked at. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're not looking at a theology of Jesus, as I say. We're not talking about kind of uh, what did Jesus achieve on the cross or, um, you know, what marks the teaching of Jesus. We're not, we're not kind of looking at those things. We're talking about as a theologian in his ministry, what were the kind of things he did and said and seem to have be- and seems to believe. So um, that's what we're going to do, and we're going to do it in two parts. The first half we're going to talk about how Jesus taught, the methods he used, and the second half we're going to talk about the content of his teaching, what he was actually saying. Um, so before we start, I just want to hand it over to you for five minutes, just talk in your groups. What stands out to you the most about Jesus's style, his teaching style, his ministry style, whatever it is, the style that Jesus had? What stands out to you? Five minutes. Go ahead. Yeah, no, that, that is, um, that's great. So there's a common themes there. He uses parables. He uses everyday language people can understand. He, he speaks in a way that people can uh, take in, which also means that sometimes he ends up being very confrontational. So, yeah, all those things are, are great, and they are, they are striking. Because when you think of, you know, bear in mind, uh, an orthodox kind of Christianity is saying this is, God incarnate as a person. This is you know, the human being of all human beings. When we come to him, what do we find? Someone who is coming down to our level, understanding, and we can understand, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's great, really. 
But so, yeah, let's, let's open up on how did Jesus teach. And I was going to say this earlier, and I forgot. If you do want to explore in your own time more that whole question of Jesus' conception of himself, did he understand himself to be the Messiah, did he know he was God, all those kind of questions. I've recommended it before, but Jesus and the Victory of God by N.T. Wright is amazing. It's very, very good on that, so I would recommend that. But uh, anyway, let's crack on. So how did Jesus teach? Um, so if you look on your handout, the first thing we've got there is aphorisms. And an aphorism is just the um, ancient world's way of saying what we often call a soundbite. It's a short, pithy saying that conveys an astute observation or truth. So um, I'll give you some examples of, of aphorisms uh, that would be very popular in, in Jesus' time, something like, marry well. You know, it's just a short saying which Joe Bloggs on the street could take in and take us some life advice. Um, or ones that we use today, too many cooks spoil the broth. We just have all the sayings that are just pithy pieces of wisdom. Now, the thing about aphorisms is these aren't things that the philosophers of the time are using. You know, when you go to Athens or speak to the really intelligent people in the Roman Empire, they aren't going on about, oh, aphorisms, yeah, they're great. This is what, as I say, everyday people, Joe Bloggers on the street, this is what they're using to teach and understand wisdom in a non-literate society. So if you think about how helpful that is to have a short saying which is really memorable, is someone who doesn't read or write can hear something once and remember it and apply that to their lives. So as I say, they, they give a memorable um, wisdom to the average person. And the other thing they do is, and you see Jesus doing this all the time in the Gospels, because they're often so striking, as small as they are, they take time to think through. So Jesus someone comes up to him and opposes him and he just throws back an aphorism, just perfectly worded, and they're just, okay, well, I've definitely got a reply for this, but it's going to take some time. And, and the time they take to think of it, it just kind of diffuses the situation. So um, can everyone think of some examples of Jesus's aphorisms? Let me chuck one out just for an example. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Got that on my list. Thank you, Brian. Any others? Keep them coming. How about blessed are the poor in spirit? He did not come to call the righteous, but yeah. Pardon? Perfect. Yeah. So that Jesus uses these. Pardon? Indeed, yes, came for the sick, not the well. Um, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a, a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. There's, there's loads of examples of these. And it is important to say, Jesus does use these all the time, but the Gospels aren't just a collection of sayings. So we do have a, 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 a document called the Gospel of Thomas, which is a kind of a heretical Gospel, and it's just 114 sayings of Jesus. And there's no narrative, there's no story, it's just sayings. The uh, last saying the women in the room might take issue with, if you, if you want to go and look at the Gospel of Thomas saying 114. Um, but we shan't go there tonight. But, um, <laughs> okay, we shall. I, okay, so Mary comes to the disciples and says, you know, basically, can I hang out with you? And they say no. And Jesus turns to them and says, whoa, 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 guys. If a woman becomes a man, she can enter the kingdom of heaven. 
and then it stops. <laughs> so anyway, um, so yeah, Jesus does use them all the time, but unlike the Gospel of Thomas, they're always contextual and use them in a certain way. Uh, so, uh, so this is aphorisms. Now, as I say, why would Jesus spend some time constructing aphorisms? I mean, wh what would you think? Something we talked about earlier with his style, especially from this table. He was very clear and he wanted to be understood and he came to the average person on the street at their level. So he gives these sayings and you can only imagine he spends time thinking through these sayings in order to get alongside people. So that's aphorisms. Next we're going to look at, par oh and I should also say, if at any point you want to just stop and ask a question, if I'm going too fast, do put your hand up. You don't need to wait till the end for questions. Um, but let's move on to parables. So parables, these make up about 33% of Jesus' ministry. If you were to kind of break down the Gospels, about a third of all the narrative about Jesus are these little stories that he comes up with. Now, uh, the parables are, are not unique to Jesus, so if you're reading through your Old Testament you get to Isaiah, you'll find Isaiah speaks in parables quite a lot. He uses the parable of the vineyard, for instance, which is a big one which Jesus takes on and adapts. Ezekiel uses parables um, throughout the book of Ezekiel. Some of them are particularly, um, uh, well, you wouldn't want to read them in Sunday school. Uh, but they are kind of a, a sharply pointed story. Now, it's important to say here the difference between a parable and an allegory. So an allegory is a story where kind of everything represents something. And the parables, unfortunately, did used to be treated like that. So I'm going to just use uh, Augustine's commentary on the parable of the Good Samaritan to kind of get this across. So the story of the Good Samaritan, as we know, is the story of a man who's on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's set upon by thieves. And then a Levite walks past as he's there beaten on the floor, but eventually a, a good Samaritan comes and stops and gets him on his donkey. He takes him down to the inn. He pays the innkeeper two coins. Now Augustine came to this parable and he went, oh, it's obvious what's going on here. The man is Adam. The robbers, this is Satan and the demons when they robbed him of his immortality in the Garden of Eden. The Levite, well, this is the Old Testament priest system saying that there is no hope of salvation in this. The Good Samaritan, well, this is Jesus. The donkey is the incarnation of Jesus because he arrived on the beast of burden. And putting the man on the donkey is a reference to believing in the incarnation. The inn, of course, is the church, and the innkeeper is, of course, the Apostle Paul. The thing I, I didn't include on there is that he also said that the two coins, well, he said two different things. One time he says that they are the Christian virtues of faith and love, and sometimes they're the Old and New Testaments. So Augustine kind of goes, well, we, we know what to do with an allegory. Everything has a point. Now, obviously, this is not right. This is not how parables work, as much as I don't like to disagree with the great Augustine. Um, but yes, so a parable isn't an allegory, it's a story that's getting to a point. Now often, and I'd say it's quite, quite a helpful, careful default to assume there is only one point being communicated. Sometimes, if the parable really is pushing it, you might think that there's actually a few things going on. And sometimes there are allegorical elements within a parable, but that doesn't change the fact that primarily a parable is a pointed story. Often with only one point, but as I say, not necessarily only with one point. Now, I'm sure we could all 
um, kind of mention a parable and we could go through it and we could see where the allegories are, see what the points are. I think that would take too long. It would be great to do though. I mean, maybe we should spend a whole day doing that sometimes. But uh, notice that what uh, Jesus often does is he takes very familiar everyday events like agriculture, as Andy mentioned earlier, and turns them into that story, which is, is, and so what he's doing is he's taking the most familiar, right, and then he's going to the point that is often not obvious. And so he's, he's kind of taking you on a journey with him to get something where you think, oh, I hadn't thought about that before. And yet everything in that story is familiar. Um, so the, the point of the story is kind of left to the hearer to work out. And so Jesus often just tells a parable and departs. And you can kind of imagine loads of people there going, right, I'm going to have to go home and think through that one. The other thing to say is that parables aren't always just a spoken story. Sometimes Jesus acts out parables. So in Luke, I'm pretty sure it's chapter 5, Jesus tells Peter to put his nets down and catch fish. And they get this miraculous catch. And uh, then Jesus says, now in the same way, I want you to be fishers of men. So Jesus is kind of saying, what we've just done here, this is a parable. Now work out what's just happened and think through what it means to be fishers of men. So they can be acted out, they can be spoken stories. Right. Um, this is a tough one, and I don't think we're going to solve this one tonight, but we often think about parables as though what Jesus is doing is making things very easy to understand. And the problem with that is that when the disciples come to Jesus in Mark 4 and Matthew 13 and Luke 8 and say, what does this parable mean? Jesus' reply is, uh, you, you can understand the parables because the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. But then he says, but not to them. I speak in parables so that they may not understand which is kind of backwards, and I would love to spend some time, you know, maybe we'll just put the rest of the evening aside to solving this tricky issue, but I would just encourage you to, just encourage to put the ball in your course. Just go away and, and read that passage and see what Jesus is doing. He takes a, a prophecy from Isaiah where Isaiah is commissioned to go to Israel, even though they're not going to listen to him, even though they're not going to hear what he has to say and preach, and Isaiah is kind of given this command, preach to a people who will not listen. And Jesus, when talking about the parables, quotes that passage as if to say they are given so that those who are receptive to hear will take the time and say, yeah, what's going on there? Let me work it out. And those who are done with the kingdom of God, those who can't be bothered, will just say, I don't understand what's going on here. I'm going to leave this alone. So they're kind of like a provocation to get you to respond. Is this something worth thinking through or not? So... Jesus' use of parables. The last thing we're going to look at before we have a quick break is um, acts of power. Now, why have I put a picture of a surgeon and a hummingbird on there? And why have I not called them miracles? So we often refer to them as miracles. In fact, most English translations say miracles. But I'm not entirely sure that's right. Because when we think about miracles, and especially in the ancient world as well, the miraculous was often done by kind of this magical force where something amazing is going to happen, so I have to do this incredible incantation or act or do something, some hocus-pocus, and then magical things are going to happen. And you don't find Jesus doing that at all. For Jesus, it seems to be that he can do these things as naturally as a bird can fly. Can you fly? No. No because you don't have the capability, but a bird can. It's natural to a bird 
to fly. So in the same way, the surgeon's there because who would feel confident to do spinal surgery on uh, Henny? <laughs> Just me and Dolders. Right, we have no training to do that. But someone who has put the time aside, who's done the training, who's got the expertise, might say, yeah, I'd feel really confident to do that. And we might look at that and say, that is an incredible thing that that person has done. They haven't broken the laws of uh, physics or, or um, the laws of nature to do it. It's natural to them. So in the same way, it doesn't seem to me that in the, in the Gospels, Jesus is kind of breaking the laws of nature to do things. He just is doing what is natural to him from who he is, and he uses it often to teach. Like when he says to Peter, just put your net down there, and then he tells a parable from it. And in fact, I've, I've put this there, that the, the Greek word that in your English translation says miracles is just the word powerful acts. He did powerful acts. So it's not as though Jesus, as I say, is doing hocus pocus. Um, I would like to just spend a little time looking at this. Can we open our Bibles up to Matthew 11? If we just look at the first few verses, um, whoever gets it first, just if they could just read it out for us. Wonderful. So John asks, you know, are you the Messiah? And Jesus' reply isn't to say, yes, I am, or let me give you a lesson. He just says, let me tell you what I've been doing. Now, why is that so significant? So this is why I've put acts of power under the methods of Jesus' teaching, because I think he is teaching something through that. So if, I just, if you just let me read a bit from Isaiah. Now, if you, if you were here for part two, you've heard that Isaiah was like the dominant chord in the Jewish thinking at this time. So Isaiah 35 starts by saying, the desert and the parched land will be glad, the wilderness will rejoice. So it's this image of the new exodus, which Israel's waiting for, the new exodus that's coming. And then in verse three it says, strengthen the feeble hands and steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the mute tongue will shout for joy, waters will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So this context of new exodus, new creation, this day of salvation that God is going to bring is marked by the eyes of the blind being opened, the ears of the deaf being unstopped, the lame leaping, all these things that Jesus says, you want to know who I am? Let me tell you what I've been doing. So in these acts of power, Jesus is actually teaching um, something about who he is and what he's up to, so much so that he doesn't need to say to John yes or no. He can just say, let me tell you what I've been doing. John doesn't need to ask any more questions. So we're going to stop there, and we're going to do a bit more group work, and uh, this might be a bit of fun. I'm going to give you 10 minutes for this. So what we're going to do is we're going to design or make our own parables. And I think this is going to be a bit of a lesson in how genius a parable and aphorism maker Jesus is. Because there's, a, there's actually an aphorism, uh, which I quite like, which is a striking aphorism requires a stricken aphorist. Uh, 
And Jesus evidently was one such stricken aphorist. But it's your turn now. So I'm going to give each table a theme, and you've got 10 minutes to come up with a parable or an aphorism based on that theme. Ready for this? This table, your theme. Oh, just notice as well, Jesus never mentions the specific point he's trying to get across in his parables. So you can keep it vague. Your point that I want you to get across to us is pay your taxes on time. You guys, I want you to tell us why we should practice hospitality. This table, you need to convince us in a parable or an aphorism to vote for Boris Johnson. <laughs> you three, I'd like you to convince us or, or explain to us that Tesco is bad. You guys? Can you teach us, please, that fun is more important than winning in sports? And lastly, can you get across to us in a parable that the BBC is doomed? <laughs> All right, 10 minutes, off you go. Well, I hope that was a, a good, um, a good uh, tour in uh, how Jesus taught. Now, um, if you want to dig more into how Jesus taught, the chapter on parables and aphorisms in Strauss is excellent, really good stuff. And it's only, I think, three pages long. So, okay, let's spend some time looking at what Jesus taught and the content of it. Now, unsurprisingly, if you've, you know, we've been preaching through Luke for the last year and a half, you've probably heard this passage referenced about a million times now. A big part of Jesus' self-identification and teaching is Daniel 7. And tonight we have the real privilege of David Suchet reading it to us. I, I should say, before I, before I press play, I do actually have David Suchet lined up. We, I, I often reference this in sermons. Check out Daniel 7, but we very rarely have time to actually go through this vision. And so I thought it would be good to just spend three minutes listening to it. There's a, there's a spot on your handout with an empty box. Just note down what you notice about this vision, that the elements that come up. Now, I'm only including half of it. There is a second half. I'm going to reference the second half a little bit, but I'd really encourage you to go away and read the second half because it's very interesting and it affects how we read the first half. So I'm going to hand over to David Suchet, who is going to read to us. So just listen, take notes, see what you notice. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. 
It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch, because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Uh, a couple of um, things now I just want us to notice, and, and the second half of Daniel 7, Daniel is told how to interpret this vision, and he's told that each of these beasts represent a kingdom, an empire. So he's seeing before him four human empires rising up, all of these terrifying beasts. And then, uh, as, as we heard, the, the most terrifying beast of all of them is killed, is slain. And it says, and all the others have their authority stripped from them. And so the, the picture is that, yeah, these are terrifying, scary things, but even as terrifying as they are, and that fourth one is really given the scary descriptions, at any point God can just take their power away from them. And who does he give it to? Not to an even more terrifying beast, but just a man, a son of man, who comes on the clouds up to the presence of God and is there uh, given this kingdom. So this is a story really about the, the, the victory of God's kingdom, how God's kingdom is going to come. It's not going to come through another great big beast. Rather, all those other beasts are going to be unequipped, dismantled by the power of God and given to one who is the unsuspected, uh, the unsuspected victor. And, and actually, the story of Daniel 6, Daniel in the lion's den, is like a kid's version of this story. You know, there Daniel is. He's faithful in the kingdom. And the emperor, well, the, these um, conniving people throw him in among the beasts. And he's there in the presence of the beasts. You think he's going to be killed and destroyed, but in, they can't do anything to him. God stops their mouths. And then the next day, the king comes to the entrance and calls him up and says, no, come into my presence. And as he comes up, he is given all power over the kingdom, and he is allowed to, to rule next to the king. So you go from that in Daniel 6 to then that in Daniel 7, we're supposed to be reading the same story. This is about God vindicating his king, the unsuspected victim. Now, no, not victim, the unsuspected victor. So every time Jesus calls himself the son of man, 
he is taking us back to this story, and it's often when he's talking about his kind of ironic victory, how Jesus is going to demonstrate the kingdom of God. And so we're kind of called to think through, okay, not the beasts. It's not going to be something terrifying. God is going to strip them of their power and give it to this unsuspected, the, the, the ironic victor, if you like. So I think this is a really important um, prophecy for understanding um, Jesus and, and what Jesus thinks of himself and what Jesus is doing in himself. He is the son of man. Uh, and he, he knows full well that he is going to be vindicated by God. And if you think about it, his, his time on earth is like he's in the presence of the beasts. There's so many stories in the Gospels where it kind of uh, talks about Jesus was there and then the Pharisees encircled around him and then he calls himself the son of man. It's like he's putting himself in this story or rather taking this story and applying it to his own time. So Daniel 7 is just really important for understanding Jesus' theology and his aims. But the thing that the Son of Man achieves, he doesn't just stay in the presence of the beast forever. Those are disarmed through the action of God and he is enthroned. And actually what we see is that as he's enthroned, the beast that looked terrifying is destroyed. So it's like as he comes and as he is given power, and bear in mind we're told they're nations, and it says the nations all worship him. So it's like they went from being these terrifying beasts to now bowing down in submission to him. As he is seated and enthroned, they are then defeated. So that's really important for understanding who Jesus is. And uh, as, you, as you see in the second half, if you do go away and read the second half, each of these beasts are described as nations. But then when the Son of Man comes to be interpreted... It said these are the people of the Most High. Really interesting. I mean, you can talk about that. Why does Jesus take this as a single person when it's interpreted as a group of people? And we can talk about that when we get to Matthew next week or next time. But the point there is that this is a prophecy of how Israel is going to be vindicated in the presence of the nations. They're under the control of the nations at the moment. They've been battered by nations. They've been in exile in the nations. And now they're going to turn and serve God and come to him. Which takes us very naturally on to, remember I said at the beginning, strands in a rope. Jesus' attitude to Israel and the nations. So, from the beginning of the Gospels, Israel is this unescapable part of his ministry. I said this last time. If Jesus were to go to China at this time period and said the things that he said, it would make no sense. If he went anywhere other than first century Israel, it would not have a context. So, in the very beginning... When Jesus is still a baby, he's taken into the temple and Simeon prophesies over him that he is going to be for the rising and falling of many in Israel. There's something about he is here for us. And so as you go through the Gospels, we find that he refuses to help a Gentile woman who comes to him. So on your handout, you've got there Matthew 10, 5 to 6 and Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Feel free to turn there. I'm not going to read them just because of time. But in the first one... Um, Jesus is sending out his disciples, and he tells them specifically, do not go to the Gentiles. Stay in Israel. I'm only sending you to Israel. And then in the second one, in Matthew 15, a Gentile woman comes to him and asks him a request that he's heard from loads of Jewish people, and he says, nope, I'm not here to help you. And it's strange because it doesn't necessarily fit the view of Jesus that we often have as you know just there to help everyone and his response is I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel so we kind of got these two stories so if you were to take that and and they are only two but they are significant and say what's Jesus attitude to Gentiles you could say something like he doesn't care about them he's only there for Israel 
And yet, throughout Jesus' teaching, he spends so much time condemning Israel for failing to be who they are supposed to be. And throughout the Gospels, he praises the faith of the Gentiles. So I just want to spend some time trying to make sense of this by again going to Isaiah. So if you get your Bibles out, let's, let's turn to Isaiah 49. Why is Jesus going to just Israel if it seems like in lots of other places he is really intent on going out to the Gentiles as well? So um, I think as we go through Isaiah 49, this becomes quite um, obvious. And we'll, we'll go to this passage again when we look at the Gospel of Matthew. Um, but will someone just read uh, Isaiah 49, verses 3, feel free to skip over verse 4, you can read it if you want, but 3, 5, and 6. And now the Lord says, he reformed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to me, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eye of the Lord, and my God has become my friend. Excellent. Thank you, Henny. So, Isaiah 49 starts by God speaking to this servant. And as you read through Isaiah, you find the servant of God is this big theme. And he says to the servant, you are my servant Israel. So Israel's the servant. But then, in verse 5, the servant's job is to bring Israel back to God. And then in verse 6, as he turns, as he restores the tribe of Jacob and bring back those in Israel who God has kept... I will make you a light for the Gentiles. So it's as though as Israel is restored, as they grow and become a light, they also are a light bringing in those around them. So it's as though God has this plan to bless the whole world, and his means of doing that is Israel. But now Israel has gone off the path themselves, and they're in need of redemption as well. So if God restores them, gets them back on their task, then we can get on with the mission of blessing the whole world. So it's like Jesus has kind of come to Israel, not because he doesn't care about anyone else, but because he cares about everyone else, he first needs to get them back on track. Let's get God's people sorted. And so one of the things he does in that is he reconstitutes what it means to be Israel around himself. So he, um, do you think about how Israel starts? There are 12 tribes, there are 12 sons of a man called Israel. And so Jesus comes along and he takes 12 disciples. Notice he isn't one of the 12. He chooses the 12. He then says the Sabbath, you know, that this big marker of what it means to be Israel, we keep the Sabbath. He says, the Son of Man has authority over the Sabbath. This is mine. And this little one, I've just put a verse there. He takes the place of the temple. We're going to talk about this more in a minute. But John 12, 32 is so good. Because Jesus says in John 12, 32... When the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. Okay, now we, we understand that this is about the crucifixion. When he's ascended, he will draw people to himself. But what we often miss is that Jesus is quoting a prophecy. Isaiah 2 says, When the temple of the house of the Lord, when the mountain of the house of the Lord, sorry, is raised up, all nations will flow in. Now Jesus is taking that prophecy 
and saying, when I am raised up, I will draw all people to myself. He's kind of putting himself in a prophecy about the temple. So Jesus' attitude to Israel and the nations, the nations are to be one, yes. And if we're going to do that, says Jesus, then we need to get Israel back on track. And so the Gospels, if you like, are the prelude to the book of Acts because the Gospels are about getting Israel back on track and Acts are about that restored Israel going out. You think about that question that the disciples ask in Acts 1. They say, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And there's two answers to that. There's either yes but or no but. No but, I will do it in a few thousand years' time, is some people's answer. Or it's yes, but not how you think. So when the disciples receive the Holy Spirit, that's when they go, ah, Israel has been restored. Something big has happened. So, Jesus and the nations. As I just referenced there, we're going to just think about Jesus and the temple. Now, the story of the paralytic man, the healing of the paralytic man, what is so striking about that story? What does Jesus do which draws the ire of the Pharisees? Forgives his sins, and what is he claiming to be when he does that? Who alone can forgive sins? Right, so this is, this is a point that often gets captured and, and explained well, that Jesus is claiming an authority which they don't think he has. And so they say it's blasphemy. One thing that is often missed, though, because we aren't temple-minded, you know, thankfully, yes, only God can forgive sins, but where does God forgive sins? He forgives sins when you get to the temple with your sacrifice. And now the Pharisees... Forgiveness of sins, not in the temple, without a sacrifice, what are you talking about? In fact, what's really striking is that when the Messiah comes, he barely spends any time in the temple at all. When John the Baptist is out baptizing people in the the River Jordan, at the beginning of John, it makes it really clear, the Levites and the Pharisees are sending people out from Jerusalem, basically saying, what on earth is going on here? Why is there some big movement in Israel that's not in the temple? So it's kind of like they are detaching the temple from the significance it did have. And so there's, there's quite a lot, as I say, in, in the Gospels about uh, the temple, but often in quite a negative uh, sense. And, and Jesus, throughout the Gospels, kind of sets himself up as the alternate temple. You want to come to the presence of God? Come to me. You want to know what true sacrifice is? Come to me. Let me show you. Let me lay down my life. You want to be in the presence? Well, I've already said that, in the presence of God that comes to me. And so Jesus says in John 2, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And John says he was talking of the temple of his body. So Jesus is kind of taking on the temple and saying, no, 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 this, this is about me. This is the preview of me and now I'm here. Now, one thing we talked about last week is that the temple is like the center of Jewish identity. All the sects in, in Israel, in, in Judaism, all have something to say about the temple. And so it becomes this kind of, what does it mean for us to be Jews? Well, just gaze over there and look at the temple and you'll know what it's about to be us. And the, the Jewish historian Josephus, in his book about the Jewish war, spends ages and ages just going on about the majesty of the temples. How when you come into Jerusalem, you're blinded by the gold coming off the top and you'd be forgiven for thinking that it was mountains with snow on the top because of all the white gold. And he's going on and on about it because you want to know what it means to be a Jew? We love the temple. And so when Jesus comes and says the things he says, it's, it's really provocative. Now, this is something I find quite interesting. Isaiah makes all these prophecies about Israel 
being this light and the Gentiles are going to flow in. Now, one of the things we find about the temple in the first century is that this giant outside court here, so you've got the temple in the middle, and the whole outside court is called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, bear in mind, this was all written, uh, this was all built after Isaiah had written, after the prophecies were made. What do you think might lead them to build this giant court of the Gentiles? What would be your guess? They expected to fill it. A real sense of expectation of God's promises to be fulfilled. And that sounds about right until you consider that there was no court of the Gentiles with the first temple. Why? Because the Gentiles could come straight in just as everyone else could. Except on, and then on this temple, there is a notice that says any non-Jew who enters will pay with his life. So this actually isn't about an expectation that the Gentiles are going to flow in. This is about making borders that they can't cross. And so, as I say, it's this kind of center of our identity defined over and against them. We are not them, and they will not come in with us. So when Jesus comes and says the things he does and makes the claims he does and, and, and stirs up the crowd, and, and, um, and we're going to look at this in a second, and clears the temple, and one of the things he says when he does that is... This is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. All right, so when Jesus clears the temple in Mark 11, he stops people from sacrificing at it, and he condemns the way it's become a symbol of revolt. He says, you have made it a house of robbers. And, and often we understand that as though the people selling uh, the animals were doing the wrong thing. You know, you shouldn't be charging for sacrifices, but that's completely legitimate. That's in Leviticus. That's not what's wrong here. The Greek word that Jesus uses, robberies or lestes, is translated often in this period as revolutionaries. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nation, and you're making it a symbol of their exclusion, of revolt. You're the ones who are kind of honing in and making this insular view of the temple of God. And so it's a house of prayer for the nations. It's where we come to pray for them, but it's also a house of prayer for the nations, they're supposed to be coming in. And so when Jesus does this, as I say, he, it's a significant act. He is claiming to have some sort of authority over it. He stops people from sacrificing at it. You think about that symbol. It's like God saying, I don't want your sacrifices. And then he condemns it as a symbol of revolt. Now on your handout, you have a coin there. Can anyone see what's on that coin? So it's the entrance of the temple, right? And this is a coin from a messianic movement in the first century that was very much um, kind of zealot-minded. Get the Gentiles out of here. We want Israel back. And their coins that they minted had the temple on. So it's this symbol of kind of our identity over and against the Gentiles. So the Gospels kind of have this uh, big point that Jesus is saying about the temple, the temples worked fine as a preview, but now I'm here to quote Clint Eastwood, this town ain't big enough for the both of us. And so we find lots of mini discourses, and then as you get to the end of the Gospels, a big discourse about the temple is coming down. Yes, God's temple. Bear in mind, they refer to this building as heaven and earth. This is where everything in God's creation is, is represented, and Jesus says, yeah, 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 it's going to be destroyed. We can talk about that again in a minute, but, uh, which takes us on to the last bit, 
a big theme in Jesus's uh, theology is Israel has this kairos moment. Now, a kairos moment, if you don't know the phrase, is kind of a, a hinge point, an opportune time to act. Something is going on, now is your chance to respond to it. So throughout Jesus's um, ministry, he's constantly saying about Israel, the time is short. Something big is about to happen. Repent or perish. So I've got some examples there. He, he says it's like a fig tree. It's produced no fruit when it should have done. It's like a father that's asked his son to come and work and the son's not turned up. Uh, the vineyard, we, I preached on this a few weeks ago about the, the parable of the vineyard. He comes to find fruit and no fruit is there, so now he's going to come and destroy that vineyard. And then Luke 12, I think Andy's preaching on this on Sunday, so no, no uh, I'm not telling you what you should do with it, but uh, someone on the way to court, Jesus makes that parallel. You're on the way to court, Israel. Should you settle before you get there, or are you going to wait for the judge to, to give his verdict? So you have this opportunity to act. There's this kairos moment, and then Jesus, as you get to the end of Luke 19, says, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So when you get to the end of the Gospels, they haven't acknowledged their Messiah, who they've been waiting for, they kill him. And he prophesies that Jerusalem is gonna be destroyed, therefore. And while he's on the way to the cross even, um, there's some women who are weeping for him, and he just turns to them and says, don't weep for me, weep for you and for your children. And then he, makes, he quotes Hosea to basically say, judgment is on the way. And so these, um, yeah, and, and, yeah, so Matthew 24, um, this is, this is debated, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm not willing to say that I have the only view which is possibly right. There is possibly other views which are right, but I'm convinced that Matthew 24, the whole thing, is talking about the temple being destroyed. Jesus starts by just looking at these buildings. The, the disciples say, these are amazing, aren't they? And Jesus goes, yeah, it's all going to come down. And they say, when's this going to happen? The temple destroyed? What do you mean? And he just goes on, and he talks about what's going to happen, Then he ends by saying... All these things will happen within a generation. And sure enough, 40 years later, they did. So, uh, as it says on the handout, just to, to end, throughout Jesus' ministry, you've got these kind of strands which are intertwined. Israel has this responsibility to the nations. There's a significance to the temple and the temple's fate because of Jesus. And this is all because of this Kairos moment that Israel finds himself in with the Messiah there in their presence. And so it's quite a de depressing end in many ways. Uh, Israel is redefined, and so you, in a sense we can say, yes, it ends with Israel restored, but in another sense, there's Israel is destroyed. They are found faithless. They get to court, and the judge renders the verdict. But the book of Acts is a bit more cheery. Um, <laughs> So anyway, a recap and overview for tonight. Um, yes, sorry for the, the rushed ending, but um, we've looked at the three methods that marked out Jesus' teaching, his aphorisms, his parables, and his acts of power. We looked at the prophecy of Daniel 7, by which Jesus defined his ministry. We explored the relationship between Israel and the nations. We looked at Jesus' attitude to the temple and its significance. And finally, we saw that Jesus' ministry was marked by his belief that Israel was at a hinge point in her history. So uh, that'll finish us off for tonight. I'm just going to pray, and then if we have any Q&A or any questions to ask, do feel free to ask them. I know that Mike always thinks of one when I finish, so I await my weekly uh, question from you, Mike. Anyway, let me pray.
Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you came and dwelt among us. And Lord, we pray that as we um, study the Gospels and study your ministry, that you wouldn't just be an object to uh, poke and examine, but we would respond to you as you called us to. And so, Lord Jesus, we do just submit our lives to you afresh this evening. And we say thank you for coming and thank you for welcoming us in. Thank you that we are your temple, your spiritual house. Build us up more and more in the presence of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So, any questions?